so good. Father, we are thankful to stand, stand here today, to sit here today in you. We're so thankful that you made a way when there was no way. You made a way that we could be sin-free. You sent your son, your only son, your word says, whom you loved and sacrificed him on a cross for us. Thank you for loving us that much. We are thankful to be here today. We're thankful that you have given us breath in our lungs. We know that for that reason, you have given us a purpose, a reason to live. I pray that you would help each one of us as we run in different circles to be able to represent you well and that your name would be glorified in our lives and people would look and say, there's something different about that guy right there, that gal right there. I pray that that's the case. We look forward to hearing from you and your word today. We pray that you'd give Pastor Justin strength and energy as he brings your word in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, are you having a good morning so far? Yeah? We, uh, we wanted to, throughout this entire series, inspire questions. Uh, we wanted uh, last week and the week before to be a source not just of encouragement, but for believers to get more settled in their faith. And in order for that to happen quite often, uh, you've got to be able to have a, a venue, someplace, to have questions answered. Uh, we're going to do that again um, throughout the rest of this series in a unique way in our family Q&A. I think uh, uh, after there we have the, the sessions up on there, July 8th, July 22nd, July 29th, we have three different topics there um, that we want you to come ready to not just listen, but to engage on. Family Frenzy, we're talking about uh, basically the anxiety that we can bring into our own homes and dealing with kind of the frenetic pace of our, uh, our society. Family and sexuality, biblical sexuality. Do you know that there is a pervasive sexuality in our culture? Anyone aware of that? Yeah? You've got to be able to choose the discussion, and in your family it should be um, very important for you to be able to discuss uh, the biblical perspective on sexuality. And finally, family and technology. Anybody have a cell phone? How do we identify? Yeah, now that we're getting the nervous thing, right? Don't touch my cell phone. We're going to talk about, is there even a biblical view of technology? Uh, this is something that's emerging as we are taking a look at things that can distract us from God's best, that can keep us away and uh, cause us to idle away our time, uh, not focused on his best. But also, we live in an age where you just about can't function without some kind of electronic connection to the world. So we want you to be able to uh, ask those questions each week. We'll open those up, and during the course of the week leading into that series, you can uh, go on there, the little uh, mentee that should be in the back of your bulletins, a, a way for you to be able to sign up, ask those questions that you have, see other questions that people have been asking, like those, because that's what our culture does, uh, and then we'll be able to answer those questions that are most prominent in our, in our uh, congregation. You good with that? Yeah? And I'm hoping to spark a few questions even this morning. If you have questions just about sermons that we're in, too, uh, we would love for you to, to hit the info line uh, at Salem Heights or to call in or just ask us after the service.
But if there is a, a lot of questions about a certain topic, we're going to try and tackle those also uh, during the regular sermons. We want to be able to have a discussion. I think that this is going to be one of the ways that we'll be able to advance into our culture uh, when we have all the questions that are in our heart, uh, at least have an opportunity to have a vent where we're able to share those and find a biblical answer, we are more bold to share with our neighbor the truth of Christ. Amen? Amen. We have uh, a, a good apologetic. The Word of God will guide us in what we need to be able to share. And we're going to look at that this morning. The topic for this morning is, in, in where do we go from here, is the supernatural real? Is the supernatural real? And we'll be in Acts chapter 17. As you're turning there in your notes, Charles Stanley states, in the wonderful spirit-filled life, for too many believers, the Christian life boils down to simply doing the best that they can. There's no dynamic, no power, there's no real distinctive that can attribute it to anything other than discipline and determination. I meet believers all the time whose doctrine can be summed up in two statements. Nobody's perfect, and God understands. For them, life is just a long string of joys and sorrows with the promise of heaven at the end. There's often a deep chasm between what they sing on Sunday and what they actually do on Monday through Saturday. They would be quick to argue that there should be a meaningful relationship, that somehow the truth that they hear on Sunday should seep into their daily lives. But somehow the details of life are void of the divine. After all, business is business. Boys will be boys. Everyone's doing it. We have to be realistic. And on and on it goes. These pithy statements serve as a foundation of their Monday through Saturday theology. To an outsider looking in, there's often little or no difference between the lifestyle, thought life, and habits of the Christian and those of his uninformed heathen neighbor. To the secular world around us, the lack of difference between believers and unbelievers is proof that the supernatural in general and the Spirit of God specifically are not real. Do you know that there is a conundrum in the world? As we're sharing our faith, many people will look at those that are within the church and ask, is there any real difference? And what is the cause of that difference? Is it just you trying harder, or is there such a thing as the Spirit of God? Does the Spirit of God uh, actually exist? Is there a supernatural where your spirit responds to His Spirit? Is there any evidence of that? We're just going to touch on a few of those questions this morning, and we're going to start in Acts chapter 17, starting with verse 22. Let's stand as we read this passage together. Here Paul, in one of his uh, journeys, encounters a group of people that were the thinkers of his age. And it says this, So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through examining objects of your worship, I found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all the things in it, since he's Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made 
from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or any image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. Did you hear that? In righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Do you believe that's true? You may be seated. Father, as we just take a look at this passage, I pray that you would guide our thinking, that you would help us to be able to see um, not only that the supernatural is real, but that you are calling to us, that it's not just the material world, that is out there, but there is the supernatural, that you have designed us to crave a relationship with you, that we are incomplete until we are right with you. Father, we search for all kinds of other loves, for secondary things to fill up that space, but it is you that we crave. We are unsettled until we're right with you. I pray, Father, that you'd help us uh, to see that to see Paul's intention in guiding these men, but also, Father, give us insight into our own lives and the world around us. Help us to be unapologetic about saying that Christ is the only way. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So is the supernatural real? We're going to take a look at just a couple of questions that might arise uh, or observations that would force you, if you are here this morning and are a skeptic, and there is always a few uh, if you are here as a believer and you've been pressed in by the world and you're kind of concerned that maybe the theological world doesn't have enough to shore you up, there's always a few. Or maybe you're just a believer that is saying, man, how is it that uh, I can approach my friends and neighbors? I I'm hoping that we can just make a few observations here that will build steps towards them understanding for every single person that there is a God and that we owe our lives to him. Amen? Our lives are incomplete until we're right with him, and there is an eternal destiny. Heaven and hell is in the balance. And if we do not rightly approach this, then the eternal question becomes a, a very important one. In other words, the difference between heaven and hell is vast. We should preach Christ so that every person would spend eternity with the living God. And Christ has finished the work. All we need to do is believe. Is there any evidence of that? I just want to make some observations here and ask you to join me in this uh, in the few minutes that we have. First, if the supernatural is real, Paul seems to be saying here, then it would demand attention. In other words, if the supernatural is real, you would not be able to ignore it. He actually says in that passage, I see that you are very religious. Do you know that when you go around the world, that religion is everywhere? 
You cannot go any place in the world where you do not find religion. There is a craving in the heart of man to be religious, to respond. Uh, even if he is not worshiping the one true God, he wants to worship. It is a universal. And as people study this, there is something that happens in them. They, they begin to, uh, scientists in our day and age are struggling with this. And they say, well, religion is just a sign uh, that you are weak-minded. There's an interesting study that just came out a short while ago, what Americans really believe, and it was a comprehensive study released by Baylor University. Uh, this article says that in that um, uh, study that was recently released, it shows that traditional Christian religion greatly decreases the belief in everything from the efficiency of uh, palm readers to the usefulness of astrology. It also shows that the irreligious, members of more liberal Protestant denominations as well, far from being resistant to superstition, tend to be much more likely to believe in the paranormal and pseudoscience than evangelical Christians. What he is saying is, if you don't believe in God, this is uh, G.K. Chesterton saying this, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. Instead, they believe in anything. If you don't believe in the one true God, you are more open to superstition. Another part of that study, a separate group in Britain found that 55% of the people um, did not believe in God per se, but they were superstitious. 55% of them put their faith in the supernatural. Some 29%, they said, of these gifted souls believe that they can see into the future. 25% say they can regress into past lives. 23% claim to be telepathic. They began to uh, go through a series of beliefs and asked if, uh, if they were afraid of walking under a ladder, putting a new set of shoes on the table. Do you knock on wood when you say something hoping that it's true? And they found that these superstitious beliefs were pervasive all around. They were growing in their strength among those who say that they had no faith in the one true God. In fact, the superstition even has hit scientists. They found that these men who have rejected God quite often are filled with superstitions and worries and concerns that go all the way back. Um, that they're ancient. There is a craving for the supernatural. Dr. Giles Fraser said, it is certainly the case that all sorts of people who are uber rational when it comes to God believe in the most amazing hocus pocus. C.S. Lewis made this observation. He said, the Christian says that creatures are, born with, are not born with desires unless satisfaction of those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel a sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, it does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest something that's real. If that's so, I must take care. On the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for earthly blessings, but on the other, never to mistake something else for which they are only the kind of a copy, an echo, or a mirage. 
He says, if I feel in my heart a craving for that which is eternal, I was probably made for heaven. It would demand attention. Paul is looking at these men and he says, I see that you are ultimately religious. And ultimately, the multiplication of religions, the multiplication of gods, the multiplication of ideas is because they cannot find a satisfactory answer. What Paul looks at them and says is there is only one God and that craving in your heart is to put your faith in him. Do you believe it? That is the craving of man. It would demand attention. But secondly, if the supernatural is real, then science eventually would have to deal with it. In other words, there will be a hole in your understanding of the universe unless you wrap your mind around this. This is something that scientists for a long time have tried to avoid. In uh, verses 26 and 27, it says that he made from one man every nation of mankind living on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. Literally, that means they shine forth through all of creation. These unseen attributes are clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. There's a couple of uh, scientists that have been well-respected, Dr. Robert Lanza, a stem cell guru, and uh, Dr. Richard Chalmers, who have come up with a theory because they're scientists and they, they don't want to believe in God. They've said, but, but we have found that there is a problem, and that is there is no reason that we should be conscious. There's no reason that you and I should not only be self-aware, but aware of the people around us. They said it is as if we're watching a movie, as if we're participating in something. We are able to observe the people around us and, and even in our minds begin to think like they think and react like they react. We have a, an awareness that is different from animals. They can't wrap their minds around that. They present a, a radical new view of the universe and everything in it based on uh, one of Einstein's disciples, John Wheeler, he says there's this anthropomorphic principle, and that means that all of the universe seems designed just to make life happen on earth. He says that just seems obvious. We have to deal with that. Everything in the universe seems to be working out perfectly to, for you and I to draw our next breath. And at first they thought there were only four or five systems that were necessary in order for life to arise. That has become very different. Lanza says this, in the last few decades, and remember, he's, he's coming from the idea of science and studying in that way. He says, in the last few decades, there's been considerable discussion of a basic paradox in the construction of the universe as we know it. Why are the laws of physics exactly balanced for animal life to exist? For example, and, and he talks about the dark forces at the beginning of the universe, if they had been one part in a million more powerful, the universe uh, would not have allowed life to develop. If the strong nuclear force were decreased 2%, atomic nuclei wouldn't hold together and plain vanilla hydrogen would be the only kind of atom in the universe. If gravitational force were decreased by a hair, stars, including the sun, would not ignite. 
These are just three of more than 200 physical parameters within the solar system and the universe that are so exact, listen to this, from a scientist, friends with Daniel Dennett, who is one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse when it comes to atheism. He says this, he says these are just three of more than 200 physical parameters within the solar system that are so exact it strains credulity to propose that they are random. If that's exactly what the standard contemporary physics baldly suggests, that these fundamental constants of the universe, constants that are not predicted by any theory, they all seem to be carefully chosen, often with great precision, to allow for the existence of life and consciousness. Yes, consciousness. The old model has absolutely no reasonable explanation for this. He says, but I propose something called biocentrism. In other words, life is because life was the centerpiece, the reason that it was all created. We would say to this scientist, well, you're almost there. <laughs> yes, everything was created for life because it says that God created. And then he breathed into man the breath of life. And he gave us an awareness of all that he, he had created in order that we would have a right relationship with him. Science does have to deal with it. And I want to let you know, folks, even in the end times, it says that there will someday be a one world religion. You want to know why I believe that that's coming, that, that all of a sudden the enemy gives up trying to get uh, us all into atheism and just gives in to a one world religion. Why? Because it is so evident everywhere that there's a God. It is evident. And even science is having to turn its attention to how did this consciousness, this sense of a spirit arise? If supernatural is real, then it would demand attention. If uh, it's real, then science would have to deal with it. But thirdly, if the supernatural is real, then what you believe matters. If it's actually real, then you don't get to just pick whatever. If there's something real, then there's something that is true and something that is not true. Do you understand that? Ephesians chapter 4 gives us a little bit of a conundrum. It, it talks about some of the battles that, uh, that we go through in our daily life. It's the battle of walking in a way that is worthy of the Lord. In verse 17 of chapter 4, it says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you should walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walked in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their hearts, they've become calloused and have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. They're actively doing these things that are wrong, stuffing their lives with these things. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you've heard of him and have been taught in him that the truth is in Jesus. What you believe matters. Paul is speaking to these men in the Arapagus, and he says, hey, you have all of these religions, but I want to tell you about the one true God, and the faith that comes from him will guide you to certain conclusions. Man has a conscience. Um, John Piper says it's a God-shaped grid that's in the heart of every man, a moral code that's kind of laid over your heart. And all around the world, man knows that there are certain things that should shape your appetites or cause you to restrict your appetites for the greater good. 
In other words, those people who argue, well, I, I just have a certain appetite, so I need to fulfill it. Um, when they go out and they just begin to fulfill their appetites in the world, it becomes anarchy, right? I just am doing whatever I want to do in order to feel good. In order to get along in a society, you actually have to restrict yourself so that other people can thrive. This moral code that's laid on your heart that tells you what is right, what is wrong, that you can't just run around and do whatever, but there is such a thing as being focused on what is right, restricting yourself so that families can thrive, restricting yourself so that business can thrive, restricting yourself so that relationships will thrive. There is a restriction that is necessary that is a moral code. So there's two questions that strike us. First, why do we fail to feel the prompting of the Spirit in guiding us? What is it that stops us from just listening to God alone? Why do we start developing our own moral codes? And why do we reject God's plan? Piper, in one of his uh, discussions, says it's because we have lives and hearts that are packed hard with alien loves. Um, I, I think modern hoarders can give us a picture a little bit of this. Here is one house, and in order to get to the refrigerator or to cook on that stove or to store any of your food, you're going to experience some complications, right? And there's a show, amen's coming from over here, yeah. There is trouble. You can't get there. But how is it that we end up hoarding? Well, there are all these other things that we also want to stuff into that space, So as we go through life, we collect all of these little things and we add them into our space. We pull them into our reality until just functioning in life becomes hard. All of a sudden, we have to live not according to rules that are healthy, but according to all of these things we've stuffed into our life. They force us to respond to life a certain way. There is a certain trail. There's a certain location. There's only one way to go through the house. There is no longer freedom when you just grab on to whatever you want in life. Do you know that? Then your likes and your proclivities, they force you to respond a certain way. You jam those things into your your life. But also our lives get so packed that anyone that wants to help you can't get through. This was trying to get in to help a man that was a hoarder in his house. This all came out of one apartment on that building right there. They're standing on the trash heap that is there because they're trying to get in to get emergency services to this man. If there's a fire, if there is a, a, a physical failure in their body, then help can't even get in to the life because the life is so jammed in, the home is so jammed in with all of these things that are not necessary for life. Why is it that you may not be able to feel the Spirit of God? This is the question. Is it possible that your life is so filled with little tiny things you've grabbed onto that you have jammed into your soul that you no longer pay attention to the Spirit of God? Is it possible that you have packed your life so hard with all of these other things that the Spirit of God washing over you has to go over all this debris first? You haven't addressed what's real because you've filled your life with all this other garbage. That's what Paul is speaking to in multiple places in the Scripture. He highlights, you're filling your life with religion. You're filling your life with alien loves. You are filling your life with all of this stuff. And the entire time, the Spirit of God is saying, if you'll allow me to wash that debris away, I will show you what it's like to really live. I will show you what it's like. 
to really be free. I will show you what it's like to really hear my voice. But we are just driven to grab one more little thing, and it adds up until no help can get through. What we believe matters. Do you know when we finally end up in a place where everything that we've jammed into our life tells us what we have to experience, we begin to ignore or try to explain away God? I've used this illustration many times, but what you believe matters in this serious way. It's, it's real. The supernatural is real. If I take a look at that wall and I say with all of my heart, I do not believe that that wall exists, and I run full tilt at the wall, what am I going to discover? The wall is real. I don't get to tell the world or tell reality what is true. I discover what is true. Isn't that right? We discover what is true. And what Scripture says is God has already told us what is true. Don't run full tilt into a wall to discover that there's a better way to discover truth. He says there is one source. It comes from God. If you're not hearing from him, then I would suggest that your life is packed with other things. You need to get on your knees and get rid of that. Supernatural is real, then what you believe matters. But also, if supernatural is real, then the content of your worship matters. Do you know that if the supernatural is real, then God wants you to experience him? The Spirit of God deeply desires your affection. I have, I believe somewhere in your notes there, just um, I was in an alliterative mood when I wrote these down. Um, there's all these S's that are in there. Uh, this is not a complete list, a comprehensive list of the Spirit. These are just the questions that come up most often across my desk. And in here, the, what the Spirit of God does in the life of a believer, he starts at the very beginning. He signs us up, he seals us in, and he stays forever. Signs us up in John chapter 16, verses 7 through 8. It says that the Spirit of God moves in and convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Sin, there is something in us that is bent wrong. Righteousness, there is a right way to do life that is the opposite of the way that I am bent. And judgment, someday I'm going to have to stand before the living God and pay account for living my life based on my desires rather than his. The Spirit of God is the one that has tweaked your heart. It is possible that you're sitting here this morning and you actually came as a result of conviction. You came because the Spirit of God had laid on your heart, I do not know what to do with this stuff that is inside me. That's the Spirit of God. He is the one moving in your heart to draw you to the right conclusion so that you would get rid of your guilt and run to the cross. He signs us up. He seals us in. Ephesians 1, once you give your life to Christ, you are his forever. It says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. He stays forever. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that, that he moves into us, that each one of us as believers in this New Testament age, we are little naoses. It's the term, a little temples, tabernacles. It's as if the Spirit of God has moved into a little tent all around the auditorium. When we gather together, all of these people in whom the Spirit of God dwells, gather together, and their worship is heard differently. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That because we gather together, that fellowship and that communion gives greater worship to God. He stays, moves in forever, uh, and changes us. He does something to our heart. He settles our hearts. He searches our hearts. He softens our hearts. He steers our hearts. He speaks to our hearts. And he sanctifies our hearts. 
Romans chapter 8 is a great picture of this. In fact, if you just read that chapter, you wouldn't be uh, hurting for illustrations of how the Spirit of God changes your experience. But in chapter 8, verses 15, it says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now let me ask you this question. Are you absolutely sure this morning that you're saved? Do you want to know what the scriptures tell you is that the Spirit of God yearns in the heart of the believer for you to know that you have a father and that that father loves you, that you are his. Do you know that? There's a craving. If you do not know for sure that you're saved, do you know that you can this morning? All Scripture says is, if you will just believe, if you will put your faith in him, that Christ died, was buried, and rose again on the third day for you, you are his. You can know that, and the, your heart will rejoice. It will settle, settle rather than being afraid. He settles our hearts, searches our hearts. He is checking for anything that is not yielded to him. Softens, steers, sanctifies. He sets you apart from the world around. Do you look different? Do people around see that you have different values, a different direction? That's his intention. The Spirit also specializes our role. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, we actually find out that the moment that you were saved, you were given a special role in the body. Do you know that? Every single person here has a spiritual gift, and the intention was that you would use that here. Here first, and then in the world. But that your spiritual gift is meant to improve the body, to magnify God, and to cause others to rejoice. It helps stir people to love and good deeds. He specializes your role. You have a specific role. And if you're not active in that, you will feel unfulfilled. He seeks our unity. He spurs our fellowship. He, he does that, by the way, by dropping the boundaries where we no longer are focused on us. We're focused on the people that are around us. He supercharges our boldness. Have you ever read with excitement the stories of the apostles as they were going out and sharing their faith and all of a sudden it says that the Spirit of God gave them great boldness and clarity or the people around listened to their words and said, oh, it's obvious that they were with Jesus. There is a boldness that they are given. That is a supernatural gift. And it stirs our worship. As Christ is describing what is necessary in John chapter 4? He says that those who worship God must do two things. They must worship him in spirit and in truth. Just having truth is not enough, but allowing that spirit to unite the truth to your heart and cause you to worship, that is the goal. Do you believe it? Spirit of God is active. The content of our worship matters. By the way, I believe in the auditorium, one of the things that we see is that it is the Spirit of God that causes us to, this is just an aside, throw up our hands in worship. Amen? It causes us to respond with amens. It causes us to respond with excitement when we hear the truths that come from the Word. But it is also the Spirit of God that causes us to keep order. Not to make the morning about us, but to make sure that we make it about Him. Isn't that true? We want to make sure that we are not standing so we can be seen, but we want 
others to clearly see him. That's the goal. Our worship should be an honest response between us and our Father, and it should make sure that it draws no attention to ourselves. The Spirit will make sure that that happens. Finally, if the supernatural is real, then your eternal destiny matters. Acts 17, at the very end, he's speaking to these men, and he doesn't just tell them a neat thought. He doesn't just say, hey, I want to give you one more God to worship. He doesn't say, hey, I I have an interesting tidbit from some far reaches in Jerusalem that you've not heard before, even though that's what they loved. He says this very pointedly in verse 30, therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. That means to turn from the direction they're going, to turn back towards God. Why? Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man who he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. If all this is true, then the Spirit isn't just a parlor trick. It's not just something that goes boo in the night. And the Spirit of God is guiding you towards a conclusion that you need to subject your entire self to Him. You need to submit to the living God, to repent from the direction that you would go in your own heart that is running away from God and turn yourself towards Him. Amen? Amen. To run towards the living God who wants a relationship with you. He has paid the full price. And He says there is a day where judgment happens. This isn't just so that we can have an easier time here on earth. Christianity isn't just supposed to make your relationships nicer and make you a better businessman. Christianity is about an eternal destiny, a walk with the living God that so shapes you that you are a better person today. That's what he says. There's a coming day where you're going to face judgment, and the only way to get through that judgment is to give your whole case to Christ. You must move. Just having the knowledge is not enough. You know, if I were to tell you right now that if you walk out into the street, there's a lot of heavy traffic out there, and you will get hit by a truck. If you are standing in the street, and I tell you that there's a lot of heavy traffic in there, and you say, I got it, I got the information, is that enough? If you're still standing in the street, no, you got to move. You trust that information, and you make a movement to apply it. It's the same with faith. Once you know that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is all that you need to trust. If you will put your whole case in his hands and say, Lord, I believe that you paid the price for my sin and you give your life to him, you move towards him, he takes care of all the rest. Amen? If you don't have a relationship with Christ, if you are concerned about that, I would love to see you after the service and and pray with you so that you could know for sure that you are saved. What is the proof that all of this is true? It is a bona fide miracle It happens at the very beginning. When we see the New Testament birth into reality, when we see churches begin, it was based on this miracle. Christ rose from the grave. The world has not been able to undo that, unprove it, or explain it away. It is a fact of history. Christ rose from the grave. He said that he would, and he said it proves that I can take care of your eternity. The only question is, will you trust him? Because the supernatural is real. Let's pray. Father God, we give you praise. We give you thanks uh, that you have revealed things to us that we couldn't figure out on our own.
And we thank you for moments like this where we can read the scriptures, we can be impacted. And I do pray that even this morning you would spark our interest, that there would be questions in our hearts that are raised that are only answered in you. I do pray, Father, uh, for each one of us that we wouldn't just walk away with uh, an apologetic or some new information. I pray most of all, Father, that you would help us to put our whole case in your hands that we would trust Christ and Christ alone with our salvation, that we would see that his death, burial, and resurrection is all the proof we need to trust you, that you as our good Father want a relationship with us as children. You want us to yield. Father, help us to do that and to make a difference as a result. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.